0: Welcome to the Maximizing Outcomes podcast, brought to you by Jim McGovern and the McGovern Wealth Group. Achieving bigger and better results with money, family, and business isn't about creating a bigger to-do list for yourself. It's about who can help you create results without you having to do all the work. Listen as we provide uncommon perspectives, powerful resources, and experienced people that can help you maximize outcomes in your life. Let's get
1: to the show. Hello and welcome to Maximizing Outcomes with Jim McGovern. Jim, so good to be back with you. How are you? Yeah, it's great to be back
2: with you too, Eric, and uh, got a great guest lined up today. We have uh, my, my good friend, Tom Wyatt, who is actually the president of our Columbus office, and uh, he's going to be joining us here for two episodes. We're going to go back to back with Tom. We're going to do uh, part one today, which is we're going to talk about qualified retirement plans, and then part two is going to be talking about non-qualified retirement plans, which is something that a lot of business owners are much less familiar with. But I thought this would be two good episodes based on what we just covered in our last two. We we're talking about retirement income planning and the use of annuities. This is more of a deep dive into how do qualified retirement plans work? What are the contribution rates? What are some of the kind of the, the tips and tricks of the trade here? So I think this is going to be a great episode for our audience. Uh, and me. I'm going to learn a ton. So I appreciate that, Jim. <laughs> of course. So uh, before I bring Tom on here, uh, he's a wealth of knowledge. He's a true expert. He's actually one of the few people I know who is both an attorney and a certified financial planner. So uh, he brings a lot of experience to the table with with not just uh, plan design but also plan administration. And you know he works with both business owners as well as uh, his employees. So he's just giving you a a different kind of a more well-rounded approach to this topic that is very, very technical. And there's a lot of hidden trap doors. So I'm excited to bring them on here. So Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jim. Really appreciate that. So Tom, just give the, uh, I know it's I talked a little bit about your background, but uh, give us a little bit more of your of your background experience in the industry.
3: And, uh, and then we'll get started with uh, with some the tips and tricks of retirement plans. Absolutely. So um, as far as background, you're exactly right. I am an attorney, certified financial planner, And then uh, a bunch of other letters after my name that indicate expertise in in various areas. Uh, And and this is actually my 25th year in the industry working in the space. Um, As you noted, one of the major areas that that I have spent my career practicing is in the retirement plan area. That is kind of a broad topic that includes employer-sponsored retirement plans, which we're really going to dig into today. But then also individual programs that uh, just individual people can set up and and kind of manage for themselves. And then also it you know that broad topic of retirement plans does include uh, the non-qualified retirement plan space, which we're going to talk about on the next podcast. So really, really excited to uh, to have this conversation with you. fantastic. so let's let's just start with a little bit of the uh, kind of the history of retirement plans. Because yeah. this is
2: something that, uh, you know, it's not like it's you know, when the founding fathers started our country, they said, let's also put in the Constitution retirement plans like this is more of a new development of the last, you know, couple of a uh, couple
3: of decades here. So give us a little bit of the of the history. Sure. So I, I think that um, probably the best place to start is a brief history of retirement, generally speaking, because this this idea that people would work for 30, 40 years and then have 20, maybe 25 years of leisure afterward, that's relatively new, too and, um, in you know, in some of the the background and and research that I did um, early in my career, retirement is actually a relatively new concept. So basically, if you look back through history, the reason that retirement uh, became a thing is because basically people uh, lost their effectiveness at their job. and And so, if you look at the history of retirement, let's start with the Roman military you know, at at some point, uh, a soldier is not as effective at being a soldier because their bodies start to break down, they become injured, whatever that is. And uh, so the Romans had to figure out how do we get these people off of sort of off of the payroll uh, as as a soldier. And so what they did is they, I guess, originally, they started giving land uh, to to soldiers so that they could farm that land and sort of subsist through their later years. And they were eligible for that after 20 years. So if you managed to live, you know, through 20 years of uh, military service as as a member of the the Roman military, you were able to, you know be given a piece of land so that you could subsist for the remainder of your days. Um, as time went on as they ran out of land, they did start to to give, you know, a, a pension uh, in in the form of cash. and it it ended up being about 13 times your annual salary. So that's that's where we'll start this brief history lesson. Is with the Roman military, and and the reason again that that they had to do that is because they wanted to get these older, less effective, perhaps injured soldiers off of the battlefield and uh, and make room for younger folks that may be better at being a soldier. Fast forward time, we're you know into the Industrial Revolution, and the same issue, uh, the same issue was a problem for for the industrialized nations and and Germany is actually uh, credited with one of the first pension programs and and the reason was exactly the same they wanted to get the older you know perhaps more sick less effective employees usually they're also higher paid you know as, as they go through their life they wanted to get those people off of the ranks of of the corporations of the day and and so they came up with uh what you know they they're not very creative necessarily they also came up with the same term a pension and the, the idea was if you worked for, you know, a company for most of your career, that company would have to continue to pay you some percentage of what your salary was as you, you know, retired and, and lived the rest of your days. Um, in those days, the length of a retirement was much shorter. And, uh, and, and so that's the history. So fast forward, you know, into this country into the most recent uh, let's say 100 years we started with a a very pension focused retirement system where the company that that someone works for would uh, be setting money aside in an ideal scenario or at minimum at least be making a promise that that they would uh, continue to make salary payments to that that retired employee throughout their retirement um, as typically happens, you know, people started playing games with the promises, opening shell companies to, you know, sort of hold that liability, and so uh, a, a piece of legislation called ERISA was eventually passed in 1972, which really, uh, you know, sort of set up the guardrails. How much does a company have to fund for these these promises? Then you fast forward to the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, there was a whole a sea change that moved the entire industry from pension focused so you know sort of these defined benefit pension plans where someone can receive a paycheck for their entire life moving from that system to what's called a defined contribution system and most people would recognize the term 401k that's a specific type of the uh, of a defined contribution plan as a 401k and so as we entered the late 70s early 80s that shifted you know from the defined benefit pension arrangement that had historically been how everybody retired to a defined contribution arrangement where the employee was really tasked with uh, both the responsibility and the financial liability for funding their own retirement and and you know saving enough during their career so that someday they could retire not work anymore and sort of sail into the sunset and hopefully not run out of money and so that's just kind of a brief run through history about you know the the transition from the original ray, which was which was pensions, to uh, a defined contribution sort of arrangement. Now, embedded and you know throughout this whole history are tax laws because um, the the government would basically you know especially after ERISA in 1972. What they um, basically said was, you know, we, the government, are going to give you tax breaks for saving for retirement. And originally, these tax breaks were flowing to the companies because the companies were the ones that were funding it. But as we opened up the opportunity for employees, for individuals to save for their own retirement, then it became incumbent to also give the employee an opportunity to get a tax preference. Uh, Originally, it was a tax deduction, that was the only way to do it, so you got to save money on a pre-tax basis while you were working, save that money, grow it on a tax-deferred basis, and then as you retire and start drawing funds from this pool, that's when you have to pay your taxes. And and it used to be that was the only way, you know, fast forward to the 1990s and and Roth became a thing, so people could save on a post-tax basis while also receiving a tax benefit in 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 that case the tax benefit is a tax-free growth of those funds so as long as you play by the rules you put money in after tax you don't draw it out before you're 59 and a half you don't draw out the gains until the money's been there for at least five years then those gains that happen inside that account are tax-free and and so that's i guess just a a couple minutes summation of, of the, uh, the re- world of retirement and retirement plans, generally speaking.
2: So so Tom, as you're, as you're going through all that history, you know, you can clearly see that the responsibility is, is totally shifted away from the corporations and the employers and, and put it onto the shoulders of the employees where they, they have to be responsible for their own outcomes.
3: That's exactly um, right.
2: Yeah. A lot of these, you know, the, the defined contribution plans, but, I guess before we jump into any employer employer sponsor plans, um, talk to us a little bit about IRAs, Roth IRAs. Um, who's eligible? Who's not? What are the What are some of the limitations on on contributions? So I, I think that's something that people are, they're reading a lot more about these things. Like the advantages of a Roth IRA, and I, I know you get
3: this question. I get it all the time. Can I do this? Am I eligible? How do I do this? Sure. Yeah. Then that's, it's complicated, right? Because any time that the IRS gives a tax preference whether that is tax deductions on the front end or or tax free growth, if we're talking about a Roth account, the IRS is worried about people playing games. And so they want to sort of lock down who's eligible for this, how much can you contribute, um, those sort of rules. And and so when you look at pre-tax IRAs, let's start there. Um, If you're just say an individual um, and you file your taxes as a single person, you're eligible to make IRA, pre-tax IRA, so so tax-deductible IRA contributions um, up until the point that you make seventy-three thousand dollars per year. If you have a retirement plan at work, now if you don't have a retirement plan at work, then there's no income limitation at all. But if you do have a retirement plan at work, then uh, as long as you're making less than seventy-three thousand dollars, you can make an IRA contribution as well, and the maximum amount that you can contribute this year, and and these numbers move around every year. Um, So for 2023, the maximum that someone can contribute to an IRA is $6,500, unless they're 50 or older, in which case they can put in an extra thousand. So the total is 7,500 in that case. Um, Transitioning over to the Roth IRA rules, it's a a whole different set of rules, uh, conveniently. So in that space, anyone can make Roth IRA contributions up until the point where they are earning $138,000 a year. At that point, it starts to phase out. Now, if you're married filing jointly, then that number is increased to $218,000 a year. So anyone can make Roth IRA contributions up until the point as a married couple that you're making $218,000. As far as how much you can contribute, it's exactly the same number as the pre-tax IRA, $6,500 if you're younger than 50, 7500 if you're 50 or more. So that's um, that's kind of a brief run through the the IRA or individual retirement account um, world, which is separate from the employer-sponsored uh, retirement account world, but but wanted to start there. Let, let's shift gears a little bit and talk more about like
2: if you're an employer, um, I'll get this email. Almost, I mean, times a week I get this thing during tax season. But people are like, "Hey, I'm I'm a, I'm a business owner and I'm doing some projections with my CPA. We're getting ready to file returns, and yeah, they're saying, saying, hey, maybe you should put money into a SEP IRA.' Um, so, can you just talk to us a little bit about what SEP IRAs are, um, how they're different from traditional IRAs, what yeah. some of the the limitations are, how much you can put in, and what the dollar amounts are, percentages? Because I think that'll be helpful for those that are business owners may not have a lot of employees, um, but are looking for that. That sort of souped up
3: contribution for a, for a pre tax account, absolutely. So you hit a key point there where SEPs are great for for small businesses that either have no employees other than the, the owner or a very small number of employees, and and I'll get to why that is here in a second. But um, SEP IRAs, think about this uh, like a mini retirement plan, and and so imagine that you have a um, let, let's say a realtor. Or a book author, or you know, someone where they're they're an entrepreneur, they have earned income that's coming to them, and they're filing a Schedule C on their their personal tax return, um, but they have no real other employees. What a SEP allows them to do is save up to twenty five percent of what they earn through that Schedule C, up to a cap of sixty six thousand dollars this year. Uh, again, on a pre tax basis, historically, so you get a tax deduction. For your business income that you contribute into this SEP program, um, what's interesting is this year, so 2023, we're in in sort of a, a brave new world uh, as it relates to SEPs because now, for the first time ever, Roth SEP IRAs are available, and that is due to a tax law change that just got passed December of 22 and went into effect immediately. So now, for the first time ever, you you as a, a small business Say an entrepreneur with no employees, you can save twenty five percent of what you earn into a Roth SEP IRA uh, with no income limitation, like you would with a Roth IRA. Um, as far as as far as eligibility, you have to have you know positive earned income coming out of this the Schedule C. Um, and the the reason that I said that this is great for a small business owner with like zero or, or maybe a minimal number of employees is because a SEP, one of the set of rules that you have to live within is that every employee that you have who's at least age 21 and has worked for you in three of the last five years have to be covered in the SEP too. And you have to give them the same percentage of contribution that you're receiving. So let's say that I'm a a business owner and I'm making $100,000 a year. I want to save 20% of that. So twenty thousand dollars goes into my account. I also have to give a twenty percent contribution to any employee that meet those eligibility uh, requirements. So, as as you can see, you know, as you grow the number of employees, the expense of of having one of these kind of plans can get pretty large. Uh, and that's why, you know, at, at some point as a business grows, you you move away from a SEP into one of these other uh, sorts of retirement programs.
2: And Tom, I know we're gonna get into this a little bit later, but um, you're talking about vesting schedules and and how you can add some loyalty to the picture here. Because the last thing a lot of owners want to do is they they put a really generous retirement package in place. Money goes into the employee's account. They say thank you very much. By the way, I'm taking another
3: job, and that money's gone. What happens when money goes into the SEP and the employee quits? Yeah. So that, that's a great point and And really sort of another downfall of the SEP arrangement is there is no vesting available. Meaning that if if I'm the employer and Jim, you're the employee and, and I make a contribution into your SEP account, the moment it hits your account, it is your money. And if you leave my employment the next day, uh, you take all that money with you. And then one last question on the Roth concept, because a Roth, like
2: you said, a Roth SEP IRA is brand new. Uh you know, a lot of folks when they read up on Roth IRAs, they look at the liquidity. You know, how long do I have to put money in this thing before I can pull it out without paying tax penalties and, and things like that? Um, how does it work with a with a Roth SEP IRA?
3: Yeah, so the Roth SEP IRA functions exactly the same way that a Roth IRA does. So, you know, you're putting in money on an after-tax basis, so you're not getting a tax deduction for contributions. Um, in addition to that the growth that happens inside that account after the money hits the account will be tax free if you live within the rules. And I mentioned them a little bit earlier, but just briefly, you have to leave the money there until you're 59 and a half. and you there's a five year rule where the the account has to be set up for at least five years before you pull money out of it. Um, and as long as you live within those those two rules, the basis or, or the original amount that you deposited into that Roth, is available to you tax free, and so is the growth. Now, if you don't live within those rules, the basis is still available to you tax free because that was after-tax money you put in in the first place. But the growth is going to be uh, taxable, and there's penalties uh, associated as well. So,
2: Tom, let, let's say somebody's putting in twenty thousand dollars a year into a Roth SEP IRA, and I'm thinking about the business owner that things are going well for a while, then a surprise hits, and so they put in a total of a hundred thousand um, bucks over five years. Maybe they stopped contributing for a while. It's now 10 years later. Their $100,000 has grown to 150 and they need to pull money out. Mm-hmm. How much of that money can they pull out completely tax-free and will there be any penalties on that money?
3: Sure. So they can pull out the original basis that they deposited uh, tax-free, but they do not have access to any of the gains on a tax-free basis. So if they were to draw the 50,000 of gains, then they
2: would have a tax penalty to pay in that in that regard. That is exactly correct. So I think it's gonna be a game changer for a lot of people, especially folks that are like consultants, where they may have fluctuating income and they're so used to this. Okay, should we fund this up this year or not?
3: But I think this the fact that there's a Roth component of this, I think it's gonna be pretty popular. I agree. Uh, I agree. And and actually let's let's take a step back for a minute. And I've explained the difference between pre-tax and Roth, but we we haven't really jumped into why someone would want one of those. Right. And, and so let's let's go through a brief history of, of tax rates, because obviously that's related. Um, so pre-tax, I think, is pretty clear. If, if you have someone who's earning a large amount of income, one of the top tax rates, perhaps when you add federal, state, local payroll taxes, they may be 50 percent or more uh, in, in total taxes. Historically speaking, a SEP IRA was a good vehicle for them because they could, you know, Put let's say a a twenty or twenty five thousand dollar contribution into this each year, fully tax deducted and that money would grow on a tax deferred basis into the future. Now the downside to that arrangement is, when you're retired and you're pulling money out, that's when it's taxed, and it's taxed at all levels, just like you save taxes at all levels when you p- put it in. Um, and and you know too many times in my professional career, I've seen people who over contribute to these pre tax retirement arrangements where the money's locked up. And and A, they don't have great access to it. And B, if uh, you know, if and when they do pull it out, it is going to be taxable to them at whatever the tax rates are of the time. Plus, if they pull it out before they're 59 and a half, then there's penalties due. Um, and what now we're in this new world of of Roth seps and and other arrangements too, but you know, this new Roth world where you're not saving the taxes up front and you have access to those funds uh you know pre-retirement it's just the gains that are now locked away that that's a little bit different conversation and and i think that it also um as it relates to the, the tax rates um you know i recommend to many of my clients and i know you do too you know sort of a balanced approach where you want to arrive at retirement with diversification not only from a risk perspective but also from a tax perspective. So you don't want to have all your savings tied up in pre-tax accounts. And to the extent you can diversify away and have more money in Roth or uh, tax-free accounts like HSAs, life insurance, uh, et cetera, then that presents a, a really nice point of flexibility when you're in retirement and you're drawing out those funds. Definitely. Uh, it's a lot easier to navigate the tax code when you have some money that's taxable some of it's
2: tax-free it, it, you see people get backed into a corner where all their money was in a pre-tax account it felt really good to put that money in, take the deduction all those years and now they're retired and they've done well and their income is going to be the same if not higher than when they worked and it's all taxable and they're just like a, a sitting duck if tax rates go up it's like you did reverse tax planning you, you avoided a lower tax
3: and now you're staring down possibly a, a higher tax if rates go up yeah and 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 so you know, I actually was in this conversation yesterday with uh, a gentleman who, who uh, you know, I perceive to be very smart, knows his way around business. He's a business owner, and he was having a hard time wrapping his head around the the pre tax versus Roth, which one's better arrangement. You know that that whole conversation. And and uh, I, I think people get caught up thinking that there's an extra benefit on the pre tax side. By the fact that you're earning gains because this money's invested, you're earning gains on the government's money that they haven't taxed yet. Uh, In fact, if you actually run the numbers, pre-tax or Roth, they are identical if your tax rate stays the same. If tax rates drop between the time that you're contributing and when you're pulling money out, then you should have done the pre-tax, should have done the, the tax deductible sort of arrangement. Conversely, if tax rates go up between now and when you're retired and pulling money out of these programs, then you should have done Roth because you'd be, you know, you, you would be effectively avoiding the higher income tax rates of the future. And so I, I just wanted, you know, for your audience, I wanted to make sure to address that because a lot of people get get confused and and there's some misinformation out there about how, how and why you might want to do one of these. That's right. All
2: right. So we talked about IRAs and Roth IRAs. SEP IRAs, Roth SEP IRAs. Um, let's talk about another acronym for people who are loving all these things. But what about a simple IRA Yeah, and uh, a simple Roth IRA? And how does that compare to a 401k? Because I know we're going to spend a lot of time on the 401k and, and define benefit plans. But I, I think a lot of owners, they, they hear about these simple IRAs. And they think, oh, that's, that's better than a SEP sometimes, but a little bit easier maybe than a 401k. And there's some limitations to that. So let, let's dive into the simple IRAs for a while.
3: Sure, and, and so this, you know, for uh, what I would say a real business, right, where you have employees, have some operations. The simple IRA is usually the first sort of retirement plan that that business owners um, sort of look at, and and what a simple IRA allows an employer to do is offer a retirement program where the employee can save money, the employer can match, or actually they have to match uh, that money, and uh, thereby by setting this up you know the employees are going to be offered an opportunity to have you know a real pool of money in retirement and uh, and that they can draw from to support themselves and hopefully have a retirement of dignity where they can they can do the things they want to do the simple ira program is is nice as a point of entry because there's no administrative costs there are really no plan documents there's very few decisions to make Um, Because it's all pretty well locked down by the IRS. Uh, The way that a simple IRA works, you're able to defer as an employee up to $15,500. If you're over the age of 50, there's a catch-up provision, which can take you up to $19,000. And you basically have to cover any employee that you've had. And and if that employee has earned at least $5,000 of compensation, in any two prior years they don't have to be consecutive years but if they've worked for you in the past and they've earned at least five grand each year they're going to be eligible for the simple ira program um and you have to do i mentioned this a moment ago you have to do a match so as a business owner you have to factor in the fact that okay you know i'm not having any administrative cost but i have to do a dollar for dollar up to three percent match uh, for, you know, for each of the employees who participate. And what that means when I when I go through that match formula is if if an employee saves 3% of their pay, the employer must also contribute an equal amount. So 3% multiplied by their pay. Um, similar to the SEP arrangement, with SIMPLES, there is no vesting available. So the moment that money hits the, the, um, the participant's account, that's theirs. Even if they leave the very next day, and go, you know, go work for your competitor. That money's immediately vested and they take it with them. Um, so that's kind of a brief run through simple IRAs. This is usually, as I said, the first kind of program that that businesses and, and business owners consider adding. And um it, it does have some nice provisions, but it also has some limitations, certainly. So I think this is where a lot of times the 401k
2: enters the conversation because you know, I, I think a lot of folks and their employees and they work for a, a big employer, you kind of expect the 401k. I think it's become much more familiar to people. So there's a little bit of brand recognition there if there's such a mm-hmm. thing. Uh, but I think what what a lot of owners don't realize is that there's a lot of different ways to, to set up a 401k. Um, there's a lot more flexibility that you can have as opposed to some of these a little bit more boilerplate plans, like a simple or a SEP, where it's kind of like, Hey, this is just the way it is. So, um, yeah, so let, let's talk about 401ks and, and what some of the contribution rules are. But also, if you can just spend some time talking about some of the the different ways and owners can can design the plan based on what some of their goals would be. I think that'd be really helpful for the folks that are either have an existing 401k, uh, but it may not be optimal, or they're starting to think about putting one in place, just kind of knowing what their options are.
3: Yeah, great. Happy to. So, so the 401k world, as I mentioned, this really came into being in the late 70s, early 80s. Originally, it was designed to supplement the pension world that all companies had at that time. Um, And the the 401k was really a way for employees to save extra money out of their own paycheck so that they could supplement the income they were promised by their employer in retirement. Um, Fast forward time, and most employers have since gotten rid of their pensions and have basically relied solely on the 401k. And as a result of that, the government's changed the rules and, and they've made a lot more flexibility available within the 401k world. So 401ks at their root um, are a retirement program where employees and employers can contribute to the account that the employee eventually has. Um, the employer can contribute either through a matching arrangement and they get some flexibility as far as the formula that they that they would like to have. We see a lot of you dollar-for-dollar know, dollar matches. We also see some 25 cents on the dollar matches, and, and you can get very creative. I, I ran across one um, a couple of weeks ago where, where the employer match formula was dollar-for-dollar for, dollar for the first 3%, and then $2 match per dollar saved for the next 3%, really effectively giving employees a, a nice incentive to save extra money. Uh, toward their retirement. So that was a kind of a creative formula. But I guess the point is that, um, you know, you can get creative with the way that the matching formulas work. In addition to all that, the employer can also do what's called a profit sharing contribution, which is just sort of a flat contribution. Uh, many times in our world, what we what we get is a phone call from the, the business owner who says, hey, you know, I have an extra $100,000 of profits that I would like to put into the retirement program. Can you please run a report and show me how much everybody's going to get? Um, And in the profit sharing world, what a lot of people don't understand is that there are actually three different allocation formulas that an employer can use, which when I talk about allocation formulas, what we're really talking about is how much can we give to the various employees? You know, how much are we forced to give to so-and-so who is maybe a, a brand new employee working on an hourly basis? Versus how much can we give to maybe the business owner or or the key people within the business. So, when you're when you're talking about you know these 401k profit sharing plans, you can get very creative. The limits also are higher. Um, so, when we're talking about how much can an employee save for themselves, the deferral limit for those under the age of fifty is twenty two thousand five hundred dollars this year. So we're you know really high savings rates. Um, in addition to that, if people are 50 or older, they can do another $7,500, making the employee side of contributions up to $30,000 a year. They definitely have a lot more, lot more bandwidth there. Um, and then I know we we're going
2: to talk about the fine benefit pension plans, which is a, a whole different world. Uh, but before we do that, can you just just spend a minute talking about what the owners can do with their own 401k to solve some of their other Planning concerns, like you know, I'm just thinking, for example, with with, with an IRA, that's not going to help your business succession plan or or a SEP IRA. Like you might have, you know, key people in the company. You might have a buy sell agreement. You have to fund. Um, You might need to, you know, buy some insurance on on your your partners in case somebody goes down and make sure that your your company doesn't go under. So you're talking about how the the rules are a little different with what you can what
3: you can own inside of the 401k versus if it's an IRA. Yeah, absolutely. So you know. A few things that you covered there. I'll, I'll go through the first one first, which is you can uh, not only can the employees save more money, but as I mentioned, the employer can make profit sharing contributions up to twenty five percent of of the employees' pay. And because the limits are higher, I mean, for for somebody who's younger than the age of fifty, that employee can receive a total of sixty six thousand dollars of contribution between their own deferrals and the employer match and the employer profit sharing contribution. And those employer sources, match, profit sharing, those can be subject to a vesting schedule. And so up to this point, we kept talking about vesting, how it's not available. 401k, all of a sudden, for the first time, it is available. There are two basic vesting formulas available. And what we're talking about here is if someone works for a short period of time and then leaves employment, how much do they leave with of the employer's contributions that went into this plan? And there are two basic formulas. The first is what's called three-year cliff vesting. And what that means is until that employee has worked for three full years, they're not vested at all in the employer contributions that went into that program. As soon as they hit three years, they're 100% vested. So that's three-year cliff vesting. Uh, The other formula is a stepwise vesting, starting at uh, 20% after two years. 40% after 3 years and so on and until they reach 100% after 6. So that is uh, the two basic vesting formulas. So when you talk about employee retention, many employers especially in today's employment environment, you know, they're they're concerned about how much, you know, how can I keep the good employees around? And by a combination of this vesting schedule and the employer contributions, especially profit sharing contributions which can be Hedged more toward the higher earners, perhaps more productive employees. You know that's that's a, a way that we can that we can arrange that. The second part of your question, Jim, was around investment strategies. So, when we're talking about 401ks, um, we can invest in the market-based investments just like all the others that we've we've talked about with IRA, SEP, SIMPLEs, et cetera. But in the 401k world, we now have a whole other option for investment and that is life insurance policies so it's very common for let's imagine a, a small closely held business a handful of employees maybe two partners owning it very common for those partners to actually invest part of their retirement account inside their 401k into life insurance policies on the life of their partner and the reason they'd want to do that is if you know if one of the partners should pass away hopefully they have a buy sell agreement which i know you covered in one of your other uh, podcasts but you know that that buy sell agreement simply says what has to happen ideally you want to have that funded with a life insurance policy so that the survivor has the funds to make it happen <laughs> that you know whatever the buy sell says what needs to happen so um so by you know investing part of someone's retirement account in a life insurance policy you're effectively, you know, covering the obligation that that buy sell agreement is creating, and you're doing it with tax deductible dollars in most cases. So it's it's really a nice one two punch and a creative way, uh, especially for those small closely held businesses to use the tax rules to their advantage. Excellent. So last
2: topic before we wrap up, um, and I know it's a big one. Uh, let's talk about defined benefit pension plans because I'm I'm thinking about all the owners out there that are. Let's just say they're on the back nine of their career. You know, they're they're looking at this going, you know, I I, I spent the first part of my career pouring everything back into my company, um, and it's gone well. But I need to catch up now for my own retirement. And they might be thinking that you know some of those 401k contributions they sound high, but it might not be enough. So how do we define benefit pensions? Um, how do they work? And and how do they allow employee employers to put even more money in than what the typical 401k would allow them
3: to do? Yeah, and, and actually you hit a, a great differentiation there um, in your question, which is the everything we've talked about so far, both the employer and the employee can contribute to, with, with SEP being the one exception. Um, when we're talking about defined benefit pension plans, this is an obligation only on the shoulders of the employer. They are signing up for this liability, uh, which is a promise for future payments. So many times in today's world at least when we're looking at what does the employer have to pay into the defined benefit plan there's a very complicated calculation done by actuaries each year which calculate exactly how much is necessary to live up to the promise that the employer is making now that's sort of the downside so because we are promising this stream of income in the future um, and and by the way, the number this year we're able to promise as much as two hundred and sixty five thousand dollars of income annually for an employee. You could imagine a business owner who's probably you know maybe making greater than that number. They're interested in in participating and receiving that two hundred and sixty five thousand dollar annual stream of income. Well, guess what? If we have that business owner who is let's say fifty five years old and has a ten year time horizon. To fund this promise of an annual income of two sixty five, starting at age age sixty five, um, that can result in enormous contributions to this program, and in many cases, we're seeing contributions of 200, 250, even greater than three hundred thousand dollars per year for the business owner, him or herself. Um, in the defined benefit world, it's only pre tax, so we're giving the the, the business owner employer. A relatively large tax deductible contribution that is primarily benefiting them. Um, I'm I'm actually working on a case right now with a, a, a very successful accounting firm here in Columbus, where the 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 only owner of the accounting firm is is earning greater than a million dollars. He's in his late fifties and he's looking for tax deductions. Right, he's in that top income tax bracket. He believes that he will be in a lower bracket in retirement. And he hasn't done a good job of saving for his own retirement up to this point. So he's very interested in in setting one of these up. I think he only has four or five employees. So we're basically able to save roughly $300,000 per year for him tax deductible. And we're also going to be contributing somewhere in the range of $2,500 per employee for the other employees. But when you really look at the ratios, as far as what that employer is receiving, as compared to what he has to put in for the employees, it's, it's obviously very top top heavy weighted uh, into his favor. And there's different kinds of, of pension plans. Uh, I know we're, we threw
2: it all into the bucket of defined benefit pension plans, but I, I think a lot of people think of the, the classic old school, almost like a big industrial company, where it's like, here's your paycheck for life starting at X age. Um, and sometimes, even though it's an incredibly valuable uh, tool for an employee, because there's not an account balance there, sometimes people kind of discount like how valuable that really is. Um, so, you just talk briefly about the different types of of defined
3: benefit plans, uh, whether it's a cash balance plan, traditional plan, etc. Yeah. So there's basically three types. So what I've talked about in this podcast and described is basically a traditional pension plan where when someone steps off into retirement, they're promised a stream of income each year for the rest of their life. Um, and that's how it has been set up since, I mean, the beginning of this podcast, we were talking about the history of of pension plans. What happened in 2003 is uh the IRS you know through ERISA basically said okay well there's this new type called a cash balance pension plan where instead of uh you know a stream of income of let's say twenty thousand dollars a year in a traditional pension plan we're going to pay the employee a lump sum at retirement of you know it might be three or four hundred thousand dollars which is the equivalent of the twenty thousand a year but it's just we're giving it to the employee to manage themselves, and uh, you know, at, at retirement age. And, and so that's the cash balance arrangement. And it's getting a little bit in the weeds here, but there's also a substantial difference when we're talking about traditional versus cash balance in a traditional defined benefit plan. For the most part, and there's some flexibility here, but for the most part, we have to treat everybody equally. So if we're replacing 50% of someone's pre-retirement pay, we have to do that for everybody, whether it's the business owner to the hourly worker you know, at the front desk. When we talk about cash balance plans, we can treat people differently now, and we can uh, actually give a higher percentage to that business owner, to the people that are earning more, to the people that have been around longer, to the people that are older. And so by using some of these rules, that's how we can get to the substantial differences in contribution that I explained a moment ago, you know, 300,000 plus for the business owner, a couple thousand dollars toward everybody else each. Um, That's a substantial difference and and a really nice benefit for the average business owner that's just looking for a place to store some money, get some tax deductions. Now, what about the last topic here,
2: just the 412 E3 plans? Mm-hmm. cuz that's something that you throw out there to most people like a, a four what? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like you mean like a 401 thingy? Like no, it's called a 412E3. Um yeah, their, their what do those do differently? I know before we put everybody to sleep here, what do those do differently than the other two pensions?
3: Yeah, so the 412E3 um by the way, for those in the audience that maybe been around a while, these used to be called 412I but then they changed the code section reference. Um so basically this is a traditional defined benefit plan that happens to be invested only in fixed investments. So we we're not investing in the market, there's no volatility, we're using fixed and guaranteed whole life insurance and we're using fixed annuities. Now you might say, you know, why would anybody do that? Well, two reasons. First, we're limiting any variability in what that that client is going to walk away with in retirement. And for some clients, they, you know, they feel and rightly so in most cases that they're taking substantial risk in their business ownership. They don't also want to take risk in, you know, what they're investing their retirement funds in. So that's the first reason. The second reason is when we are reducing the rate of return that we're assuming in the defined benefit calculation, that also, uh, that, that has the opposite effect on the required contribution. So we're actually increasing the contribution available, therefore the tax deduction available. So going back to my CPA example, uh, with the, you know, the $300,000 of annual contribution. If instead of a cash balance plan, he were interested in setting up the 412E3, we'd be looking at contributions more in the four thirty dollars to $440,000 range just for him. Now, the downside to the 412E3 is you also have to cover all the employees. And because it's a traditional pension, you have to cover everybody with the same percentages. So the ideal client, for a 412 E3 is going to be that solopreneur, you know, no employees. Maybe everybody's a 1099 employee, don't have any W-2s that you have to cover. Um, but the moment that you start adding other employees, it it can get pretty expensive uh in contributions for their benefit. Fantastic.
2: So, Tom, this has been great. I think this is an awesome part one because we're we're talking about you know, this whole umbrella of qualified retirement plans, but I think if, if you're if you're following what, what Tom is saying here, that there's a lot of rules to follow. You know, we have to make sure that they're you're not discriminating against certain classes of employees. So that, that pretty much a lot of these plans, like the 401ks, uh, the defined benefit pension plans, like Tom said several times, like you have to include the other employees, and there's a lot of rules around that. Um, so that I think these can be really core, kind of bread and butter type offerings to attract and and retain. Um, a wide section of employees. Uh, and that's why we covered this first. But next episode, what we're going to be talking about are non-qualified retirement plans. And and Tom, just so, I guess to give everybody a preview, uh, just spend a minute or two just talking about what non-qualified plans in concept can do and why that might be advantageous for a lot of business owners to consider that either instead
3: of or in addition to what we did today. Yeah, sure thing. So in the non-qualified plan space, all of a sudden, you know, there is a rule book but it's much more flexible uh, than than what you've just heard as it relates to all these qualified retirement plans. So we can cover who we want to cover. We can cover people at different rates, and we can make vesting schedules way out in the future. Um, I've, I've set these up recently with a vesting schedule as long as 17 years uh, for one key employee where where the employer was willing to put substantial contributions into their account, but not if they're going to leave three or four years from now. And so, um, you know, we'll we'll talk more about it next time. And it's going to be a really kind of a fun fun conversation because you're right. I mean, in your opening comments, I think there's a real misunderstanding about how these work and and who they can work well for. Right, because you might have certain people in an organization that are responsible for
2: substantial amounts of revenue, or they're just really unique talent that it's really difficult to replace. So you might say, you know, we need to do something separate. For these specific people, and um, and that's the whole reason why these non-qualified plans exist. It's a way to reward the very, very best people in the company. Um, you know, that really helping your bottom line and helping to grow the value of the company. So, I think it's going to be a great episode. So, um, so Eric, let me throw it back to you to
1: to wrap us up, and uh, and we'll see everybody next time. Absolutely, this has been fantastic. Learned a ton, and uh, I know the audience did too. Jim, for those folks that want to actually further this conversation with you before they hear that next episode, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Yeah. So if you, if you have questions about your retirement plan, if you already have one in place
2: or you're thinking about putting one in place, uh, again, Tom and I work together. So you can reach out uh, on our website, info at mcgovernwealth.com. Uh, and just in the there's a little contact us button. Tell us what you're thinking. We'll reach out to you and we'll, we'll schedule some time um you can also uh you, again you can email me info at mcgovernwealth.com or go to our website www.mcgovernwealth.com
1: and uh you know reach out to us and we'll we'll pull Tom in and we'll talk about your retirement plan all right sounds great tom again thank you so much for being here jim thank you for hosting the show and bringing another fantastic guest i look forward to part 2 and of course our last thank you goes to you listening audience thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the maximizing outcomes podcast with jim mcgovern if you have not subscribed to the podcast yet please click the subscribe now button below. This way when Jim comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. We humbly ask that you share this podcast, rate it and leave a review as this actually does help others find the show. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at McGovern Wealth Group, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day and we'll see you next time.
0: Thanks for listening to the Maximizing Outcomes Podcast brought to you by Jim McGovern and the McGovern Wealth Group. Be sure to follow the show to be notified when new episodes become available. To suggest a topic or guest for a future episode, or learn more about how we can help to maximize outcomes in your life, visit our website at www.mcgovernwealth.com. This podcast is intended for general public use and is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or McGovern Wealth Group, and opinions stated are their own. By providing this content, Park Avenue Securities LLC is not undertaking to provide investment advice or a recommendation for any specific individual or situation, or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Please contact a financial representative for guidance and information that is specific to your individual situation. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. Jim McGovern is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC, financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. McGovern Wealth Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. CA insurance license number, 0F67329. AR Insurance License Number, 7119103. California Insurance License Number, 0F67329. Arkansas Insurance License Number, 7119103.
2: Tom White is a Registered Principal and Financial Advisor of PAS and a General Agent of Guardian. Tom is not practicing law for Guardian or its subsidiaries or affiliates. California Insurance License Number, OE 84981. Compliance number 2023-157154 expires July 2025.